Sefer Bamidbar concludes with Parshas Masei, and the main thrust of the opening of that Parsha and where the name of the Parsha comes from is a very detailed list and lengthy list of what turns out to be 42 different places, 42 different locations, which mark the comings and goings of the Jewish people throughout their 40-year wandering in the Midbar. Perak Lama Gimel, from Pasuk Aleph all the way to Memtet, 49 detailed psukim describing this journey and the 42 places along the way. And the obvious question is why? Why is it so important for us to know this? Why would Hashem want us to know this? The Torah, which takes great great pains with very exactitude for every word, every letter even. Why 49 psukim to tell us about all these places where they went in the desert when presumably we wouldn't necessarily even care, to be honest, on our own to know. We know they were in the desert for 40 years. Why isn't that enough? Why do we need to know every place that they went? So the truth of the matter is, the Eben Ezra suggests that perhaps from Hashem's perspective, it wasn't so important. The Eben Ezra has a shocking chiddish that this entire section of the Torah was written with Moshe's initiative. Now, I guess he has to assume that Hashem didn't tell him to take it out, but he says clearly that it was not Hashem's initiative. That when the Pasuk says in Pasuk Beis that these journeys were Alpi Hashem, they only did things the way Hashem wanted. The Ezra reads that Pasuk is saying specifically the journey from place to place was Alpi Hashem. But the first part of that Pasuk that Moshe wrote down this travel log, V'yichtov Moshe, says the Ezra that was not at all Alpi Hashem. It was in essence Alpi Moshe. It was Moshe's own initiative. The Ezra doesn't explain why Moshe would want to do it, but he does say it was all Moshe's initiative. And not surprisingly, this radical Chiddush is met with great Resistance by the majority of the Mepharshim, who point out, first of all, it just seems inconceivable, Hayitachain, that Moshe would add or amend or change the Torah text on his own. Moreover, why would we need to tell us that the Motzeim Lamaseim were Alpi Hashem, that they journeyed from place to place Alpi Hashem? We already know that every place they went to was because Hashem told them to go or to stay. So there would be no need for the Pasuk, and anyway, more fundamentally, it's inconceivable that Moshe would have done it on its own. So, on his own. So, therefore, we need to come up with other explanations for presumably why Hashem would want, why the Torah would want this section to be written. And I want to share briefly with you three different interpretations. Number one comes from Rav Moshe Hadarshan, who's quoted by Rashi in Pasagalev. And he says, the purpose of this section is to show Hashem's compassion and mercy. Chasadav shel makom. After all, if we wouldn't do a careful reckoning, we might think that the Jewish people spent 40 years coming and going, never being settled, which would be a really difficult way to spend what was anyway going to be difficult 40 years in the desert. But, says Ramosha Darshan, if you do the math and you take a look at the location and the timing of the journeys as detailed in the Torah, you see that in fact the first 14 of their stops all took place in year one. Now clearly that was a busy and difficult year, but it was also an exciting year. That's when good things were happening, because that all happened before the Chet Maraglim, The punishment actually was for everything after that. And there, he says, it's not so difficult. After all, the last eight of the locations that they spent in their journey, the last eight were in the 40th year, which means that the bulk of their time in the desert, 38 years, they only had to move 20 times. They only had 20 stops in the 38 years, which I'm sure was not an easy time, but it was far from torturous. They had plenty of locations and stays where they were quite a bit of time and they had a chance to really settle in and live a relatively normal life. And therefore, says Ramosha Darshan, it goes to great pains in the Torah to tell us all these locations and the timing so that we would realize that Hashem had compassion on them and made the 40 years as easy as possible. The Rambam in Mor gives a second interpretation. In the third section, in the 50th chapter, 
Nun of Chela Gimel, the Ramam says that this is actually to highlight the great miracle of the Jewish survival in the Midbar. Of everything that we commemorate in this period of Jewish history, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Kriyas Yamsuf, says the Ramam, the greatest of miracles was not the one-time event, but the fact that for 40 years the Jewish people miraculously survived in the desert without any source of food. All they had was the miraculous mun. So says the Ramam, that's an incredible miracle. But it only serves its purpose for the original generation who actually experienced, or who, maybe the second generation, who knew people who experienced uh, these actual miracles. But over time, over centuries, over generations, the further away we get from the event, people are much less likely to believe it. They didn't see it for themselves. No one who they knew saw it for themselves. And people would start thinking, well, perhaps there really was an oasis, or maybe they, want, they, you know, they happened upon some nomadic tribe that gave them food, or maybe they were really just sitting in some place in the desert very near civilization where they were able to get food in a natural way. And there was a drama the goes out of its way to tell us these 40 locations, for, these are 42 locations, excuse me, which we can identify and we can confirm without any doubt that they were in places which are completely barren, no one lived there, no natural water or food source, and therefore there's no way in a natural way of current events that anyone could have survived it. And the only way, therefore, now that we know where they were with detail of the 42 places, the only way they could have survived it was the miracle. So, so as the Rambam, the reason that this is highlighted is it emphasizes and underlines the miraculous nature of their survival. According to Moshe Darshan, it highlights Hashem's compassion. According to the Ramam and the Mordechim, it highlights the miraculous nature of their survival. Last but not least, the Malbim suggests a very beautiful interpretation. He says the reason we have this detailed list is to give us a clue to the goal of the journey. In Posuk Aleph of the Parsha, it tells us that these are the Masei B'nai Israel, Asher Yetzu Me'eret Mitzrayim. These are the journeys the Jewish people took when they left Egypt. But asks the Malbim, why doesn't the Torah emphasize where they were going? It only emphasizes where they were coming from, that they left Egypt. It doesn't say where they were going to Eretz Yisrael. And that's bizarre, because usually in a destina- if you have a journey, the destination where you're going to is the Ikar. And yet that's left out of the Apostle. The only thing we're told is where they were coming from. Why emphasize only where they're coming from, not where they're going to? Says the Malbim, because this shows us that the Ikar of the particular journey, and the fact that it took 40 years and they went to all these places, the Ikar was not where they were going. To, get to, ju- to just get to Mitzrayim, from, from Mitzrayim to Israel, excuse me, if the goal would have been to get there to Israel, that could have been pretty quickly in a short period of time. But in fact, the real goal was not just for the Jews to leave Mitzrayim, but to get Mitzrayim out of the Jews. They had to take this lengthy and circuitous route because they needed this much time and all these different stop and starts in order to purify themselves, step by step, location by location, to be ready to enter an to Israel. Every Masao Matzah says the Malbim created a Yitziach Adasham Eretz Mitzrayim. Each time they left another city, they were Mitzaref themselves, they purified themselves that much more. Until the Malbim concludes poetically, they were able to finally rid themselves of their Simloseim Hatzoim, the dirty, contaminated, sinful clothing, so to speak, that they had from their time in Egypt. And instead, they finally, after 42 stops over 40 years, they were able to be Lovshu, as it were, Big Day Kodesh, Midos Taharu Kedusha. They're able to put on holy clothes, as it were, and ready to enter the land of Eretz Yisrael. Towards the end of Parshas Masai, we have a section that deals with, unfortunately, murder, whether it's accidental murder, Beshogeg, or even deliberate, Ritzicha B'Mezid. And the Torah has a somewhat enigmatic phrase in Pasuk at the end of Parak Lamed Hay, in Pasuk Lamed Gimel, where the Torah tells us, Lo tachanifu es ha'aretz asher atem ba. 
what does that mean, lo tachnifu, the world? So Rashi explains from the Targum, lo tarshion, don't bring evil, don't bring guilt upon the land in which you are living in. Ki adam hu yachnif if you spill blood, that will bring guilt, that will bring evil into the land. And the earth will not forgive the blood that has been spilled there unless you spill the blood of the perpetrator, of the murderer, of the man or woman who had committed the murder. It's a very important and understandable pasuk, as it were, the value of human life, the prohibition and morality of murder, how that can contaminate the land of Israel. However, as Ramosha Feinstein asks in his Sefer, Darash Moshe, why would the Torah choose to make this point in this pasuk by using such an awkward term as tachanifu, or yachanif? We're familiar with this phrase much more commonly from the prohibition of chanifa. Chanifa usually means flattery. There's a prohibition to flatter, excessively flatter people who don't really deserve it. That itself is uh, something from the Torah that frowns upon. And why would we use a term that in its more natural uh, understanding, typically understood, means not to flatter? So we need Rashi and the Targum to help us figure out that in this context it means something different. But why use that term? Wouldn't there be a much easier phrase that we could have used to make the point in the Pasuk? Why use this borrowed term which usually and literally means don't flatter? So Ramosha, in order to answer this question, gives it's a very short piece actually, but I think a very profound uh, interpretation in which he suggests that this Pasuk is coming to, in this choice of word, actually highlights the fundamental difference in the value system expressed in the legal system of the non-Jewish society as opposed to in Jewish society. In the non-Jewish society, over time and over history, says Ramosha, in the best case scenario, and unfortunately there have been many societies that have been far from the best case, but in the best case scenario, when they enact laws such as don't kill or don't steal and things like that, it's for a stated purpose of tikkun ha'olam, or Ramosha refers to as yishuv ha'olam, the better ordered and running of society in which people can live without fear that you know, if they go to work one day, they'll come home and their house will be robbed, if they can go to work one day without worrying about being killed. You can't have a society run that way. You can't have a Yeshua HaOlam that runs that way. And in fact, this is a very legitimate value that the Torah itself and Chazal themselves endorse. As the Mishnah and Ramosha quotes this in Perkyavos, the famous Mishnah in Perkimol tells us that for Jews who find themselves in a uh, guests as guests in a foreign society, we should be davening for the successful Shlomo Shalmachos, for the successful running of society by that local government. If people can't live with a proper sense of uh, respect or even fear for the law and order that comes from on high, from the government and its police force, etc., without that, the sense of respect or even fear of authority, people will, as the Mishnah says graphically, People would swallow each other whole. In other words, there would be total anarchy without the imposed order from the government. And we recognize that Yishuv Ha'olam and Tikkun Ha'olam is something very legitimate. We would even daven for it. Ramosha, however, goes one step further. He says, if you want to understand the non-Jewish societies, you have to take this phrase very seriously and even literally. The Yishuv Ha'olam, the Tikkun Ha'olam, puts the emphasis on the Olam, on the earth or on society. The goal is what's best for society. What's best for society is to treat the individuals with respect and respect their property and person. But the goal is the betterment of society. And therefore, says Ramosha, if you would come up with a situation in which they determined that for the betterment of society, certain people can be killed, then that could be rationalized. Because after all, the goal is the betterment of society. So for example, says Ramosha, what about euthanasia or mercy killings, people who may not have that much time to live or what we would consider by societal standards a quote-unquote quality of life. Maybe it's a drain on resources, it's not really respecting their life, there's no need for their life anymore. Maybe we could easily rationalize killing such people. After all, it could be 
understood and rationalized as being better for society. That's better for Yeshuv HaOlam. Rav Moshe himself says it's known that as people get into their advanced age, sometimes the medical system, the doctors or the hospital, don't put as much effort into extending their life, because you know they're old anyway. Says Rav Moshe, we know, unfortunately, that some of the most civilized, quote-unquote, societies in human history, some of the most civilized, quote-unquote, countries in human history, are ones that preached the Tikkun HaOlam, and they were among, unfortunately, sometimes the most cruel and deadly. All of this, says Rav Moshe, even though it's coming from a somewhat good place, but could become corrupted, all of it can be contrasted, says Ramosha, with why the Torah and the Jewish value system, even when it comes to the very same overlapping rules, like don't murder or don't steal and the like. We keep those mitzvot because it is Ratzon Hashem. And the Ratzon Hashem in this area, the will of God, the Torah value in this area is that the Torah teaches us that the goal is not the olam, the society, but rather what Ramosha refers to as chashivos ha'adam, the innate importance of every individual, what we would call Kavar Abrios, human dignity. We believe as a Torah value that every human being, if you even save one life, it's like we makayim the whole world. It's not the goal isn't society, the goal is the dignity and the preservation of life of every individual. Or Moshe refers to, again, as I say, as Chashivos Adad. And therefore, says Ramosha, even if it would be determined in a specific case that it is not in the furtherance of Yeshuv HaOlam, the betterment of society, to save this person, it wouldn't matter. Ramosha gives an example. Let's say someone is cognitively deficient, what we might call now special needs, or someone has not that much time to live, Chayei Sha'a. Nevertheless, despite whatever rationalizations you could make for not giving them the support they need, let alone killing them, it would be obviously in both cases completely prohibited from the Torah's perspective, because we focus on the dignity and the innate worth of each individual person. Not only would it be prohibited, it would even be Machal Shabbos to save their life. We don't look at grand rationalizations and schemes for society, we look at the innate dignity and sanctity of every individual. Coming back to our Pasuk, Ramosha explains so beautifully. The Pasuk as it's summarizing the evil of murder, is telling us not only the deliberate, you know, callous murder, that's obviously prohibited, but even lo tachnifu esaretz, don't flatter the earth, the world, so to speak, and say, well, the ultimate purpose of murder and those prohibitions is the betterment of the arts of the society. And therefore, if you flatter the earth, the society, and say that's really the goal, then you could come up with rationalizations where in certain specific cases we could even lose life. On the contrary, realize that it's not the Aretz, but the Adam who is the Ikar. And even though we value Tikkun Olam, that's only when it is Bamahu Shaddai. The outset of Parshas Masay lists the 42 places that the Jewish people stayed and traveled from and to during their 40-year sojourn in the desert. Rashi, in explaining why this is important for us to know what the purpose of this travelogue is, quotes in one of his explanations the tradition that he got from Rabbi Tanchuma, from the Medrash Tanchuma, who compares this in a mashal, in a parable, to a king whose son was ill. And he took his son and he traveled with him a great distance in order to find the right doctor, the right medicine, in order to heal him. Thankfully, it was successful, and on their way back home, as they reversed their trip, they went in the opposite direction of their journey, they passed all the places that they had been, each time the father took the opportunity to remind his son when he would point out a place, Kan Yashanu, here's where we slept, Kanu Karnu, here's where we felt cold, here's where you didn't feel well, etc., etc. Question is, what is the deeper message of this mashal, what is the nimshal, what is the lesson we are supposed to take, what is the Tanhuma and Rashi trying to convey? Rav Schwab in his Sefer Ma'ayan Beis HaShoeva 
beautifully explains that to answer this, we need to first answer something very strange in the entire listing of these 42 places where the Jewish people traveled, somewhat inextricable even about this description, about this travelogue. On the one hand, even when the locations of major events are mentioned, the actual events, the major events, are never referred to. There is no mention, even though this is a description of their 40-year traveling in the desert, everything that happened, all the places they went to, I should say, but there's never any mention of Kriyas Yamsuf, not of the Mon, Mara, Matan Torah, the Mishkan, nothing, the water, nothing. And yet, on the other hand, every once in a while, the Torah does interrupt the list of places in order to mention what took place at a specific location. But all of these references are actually incredibly curious because none of them seem to be that important at all. So, for example, in Pasuk Dalid, it mentions that at a certain time and place, the, Jew, the Egyptians were burying their dead. When they were busy, with their de- busy burying their dead, also that uh, Hashem had judged their idols. So what? Pasuk Zion, it mentions that we got to this place by Chiros, and it was near Baal Tzafon. What, is that? what does that have to do with anything? Why do we care about that? Pasuches, it mentions that it took three days to get to Mara. And no other time does it mention how long it took to get from one place to another. Why here all of a sudden? Pasuches, it mentions that in Elim there were 12 wells and 70 day trees. So what? Why is this important, especially when you consider all the things that are not mentioned? So Schwab explains so beautifully and profoundly that the theme is that these were places where something happened and the Jewish people should have and could have been inspired, but they weren't. Here, getting back to the mashal in the Tanchuma that Rashi quotes, here in this place, they slept. They should have been aroused by Hashem's miracles, but they slept through it. Here they should have been on fire and inspired, but here they cooled off. So for example, Rav Schwab goes through some of the ones we mentioned. When it says that in Pasuk Dalad that the Egyptians were burying their dead, says Rav Schwab, the Jewish people should have thought about that for a second. Egyptians don't bury their dead, they embalm them. Why are they burying their dead? Ah, so that's what the Pasuk says, that Hashem had, so to speak, done judgment with their idols. Hashem had, so to speak, defeated, killed their idols, i.e., they themselves realized that their Avodah Zarah was foolish and foolishness and there was no reason to embalm for that idol. So you see the incredible thing of Hashkacha. Even the Egyptians are recognizing the truth of Hashem and the foolishness of their Avodah Zarah. The Jewish people should have been inspired by that. They should have seen the Hashkacha in the Egyptians burying. But they didn't because they were sleeping. Khan Yashananu. When they came to the place with exactly 12 wells, corresponding to the number of tribes, and exactly 70 day trees, corresponding to the number of the elders, the Shivim Zekenim. Instead of realizing this wasn't a coincidence, but this was done with great hashkacha, they missed it. Karnu, Karnu. Here they were cooled off. Instead of being on fire with inspiration, they cooled off. Similarly, it says it took three days to get to Mara. Why do we stress that? It says Rosh Schwab, because in only three days, after having just experienced Kriyas Yamsuf, they were already complaining. All that inspiration, all that fire, and being excited from Kriyas Yamsuf, and in three days it had already cooled off. What a beautiful and profound interpretation, not only of this section of the Torah, which so often we find boring and tedious, 
and it really we see as such a beautiful Musr and message, but also such a beautiful interpretation of this Medrash quoted by Rashi. And I think that it really is a great Musr for us to think about. What is the purpose of reviewing this trip? It's not focusing on all the accomplishments. There is time for that in life, for sure. But the main thing we need to be focusing on is not patting ourselves on the back. The main purpose in life and the main purpose of reviewing this trip was focusing on those opportunities where we fell short, where we made mistakes, and lessons that can be learned from them. We each have to consider all the different events in our life. Some of them, thankfully, time of great bracha. But did we see the hashkacha? Did we thank Hashem? Did we see the great kindness that Hashem gave us in our lives? Did we use those as opportunities to come closer to Hashem, to be inspired? And unfortunately, the same is true, just as importantly, if not more so, chas v'shalom lo aleinu, if we have difficult times in our life. Did we see the Yad Hashem? Do we understand what the lesson is? Do we try to at least understand what the lesson is? Did we learn from them? Each of the opportunities, the various journeys in our own life, all of the ma'asim, the motzeem, the ma'asehem in our own life, are all opportunities to see the Yad Hashem, are all opportunities to grow and to be inspired. But only if we're awake, and only if we are alive, not cooled off, not chilling, and certainly not if we're sleeping. What a profound and important life message in Musr that we can learn, thanks to Rav Schwab, from the opening section in Parshas Maaseh. This Pasuk is not only the start of Parshas Masay, but also marks the beginning of the Torah's delineation of the journey that the Jewish people took in their 40 years of wandering through the desert and the various stops they made along the way, specifically 42 different stops that they made that are delineated here in this chapter as we conclude the reading of Sefer Bamidbar. A number of the classical Mepharshim, Archaim, Alshech, Kliyakar, others, all wonder why the Torah introduces this triptych of sorts, this list of their journey, by using the term Ela Masei Ben Israel. These are the wanderings or the travelings of the Jewish people. Since, in fact, all of the places that are, lifted, are listed are where they stopped and where they rested. The list in the ensuing psukim in the Torah do not describe the various roads and ancient highways, so to speak, that were taken. It's not a list of turn left here and turn right there. The journeys, rather, it is specifically the places where they stopped, the places that they rested. And therefore, these Mepharshim wonder, why didn't the Pasuk say, Elechaniot B'nai Yisrael? These are the places where the Jewish people encamped during their wandering in the desert. The 42 places where they actually encamped. That would have actually been more accurate. Moreover, some have pointed out that a very famous comment of the Baal Shem Tov perhaps even strengthens the question. The Baal Shem Tov is quoted by his grandson, the Degel Machan Ephraim, as suggesting in a deeper, mystical, homiletic way that the 42 Masa'ot that are described in the Parsha are in fact a metaphor for the fact that every single individual in his or her own, her own personal life has 42 stops along the way in their personal journey. We all start by leaving Mitzrayim, just like the Jewish people did. We, left, we leave a place of narrow straits. We're born. The process of birth is symbolized by leaving Mitzrayim. And then the 42 stops that the Jewish people made in the desert symbolize 42 different stations in life that every person, every man or woman, undergoes in their life. 
very intriguing and provocative, mystical kind of idea. However, the Lubavitcher Rebbe asks, based on this, it further underscores that the main purpose, even on a deeper mystical level, of this list are the different madregos, the different levels that a person reaches in his or her own life, and that's represented by the places where they stopped, where they encamped the chaniyot. Again, begging the question, why does the Torah introduce this list as elamase? It should have said elachaniyot b'nei Yisrael. So Lubavitcher Rebbe offers two very fascinating and important answers. His first answer is that what we see from here, or what we know, I should say, more generally, many Jewish thinkers, including Hasidic thinkers, say that the Iker in life is to be on the move, to always be growing, and not to be standing in place. And therefore, the Iker is the Masse, and not the Chaniyah, or the Omeid. Right? What's being highlighted here is that we're always supposed to try to grow, and not just to be settled, or to be happy with where we are. And if we had said El Chaniyot, it might imply subtly that the Ikar is to just be where you are at any one time, as opposed to always trying to grow and get better. That's highlighted and underscored and hinted at by the term Masse. On a deeper level, says Lubavitcher Rebbe, real growth is only achieved when there's a total transcendence and removal from the previous level. Not higher on that level, but when we get to a different level entirely. Think, as a metaphor for this, steps, right? When we want to get to the next level, it doesn't just mean we're higher up within the same level, but we've gotten to the next step, we're on a completely different level, we're totally minutak, we're totally severed and separated from the level we were on previously. Says Lubavitcher Rebbe, that's the difference between hiluch, which also means going, and nesiyah, which is the term that's used in masay. Hiluch focuses on where you're going, but nesiyah, or masay, emphasizes that not only where you're going, but being removed from where you were previously. As the psukim say, nesiyah may. They traveled from. And this is a very, very important point, says Lubavitcher Rabbi, again, highlighting this idea that the whole focus is growth. The growth happens when we completely remove ourselves, we transcend from our previous level to get to the next level. He adds an interesting proof to this, which is that there are some sources which he marshals, which in explaining the halachic concept of hesachadas, refer to that as hisiyah da'ato. We know that hesachadas, in a negative context, means that instead of focusing on whatever mitzvah you were on, you totally let your mind wander, you were totally removed from that, and then because you had that hesachadas, so there are all sorts of halachic implications about going back to something. But hesachadas means when you were originally in some place, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, and then you totally lost your train of thought, you totally got disconnected. So the fact that certain sources refer to that phenomenon also as hisia da'ato further underscores this idea that the Lushan of Masse or, his, or hisia refers to being totally removed from something, not just getting better, but totally removing and transcending a previous place. The bottom line says the Rebbe, Ela Masse, because each step along the way represented another step further away from Mitzrayim, another level further removed from the low level where they started out. Each step was a mini-accomplishment, but still the Lushan of Masse is to make sure that we shouldn't feel settled until reaching the ultimate goal. Last but not least, the Rebbe suggests at the end of his piece a second alternative approach, and that is that we use the term Masse to emphasize that even though they were in Golis, they weren't in a great place, every step along the way, the journey itself was valuable. And not only is the journey itself, the travel, the movement from place to place, the journey valuable, even more than just the accomplishment, the Chaniyah, but even in some of the places where the Jewish people encamped in the desert, even in some of the places that are alluded to in our Parsha, where there was a sin, where they stumbled, where they fell, even those are part of the journey, the ultimate journey, 
that would lead to the promised land. For the nation in their national journey from Mitzrayim to the land of Israel, and metaphorically for every individual in his or her personal life. We grow from every experience, whether it's a successful one or a less successful one, a failure. Even then, if we have the right perspective and we learn from it, it's a Yerida Lutzorech Aliyah. Maybe it's going down, but it's serving an ultimate purpose of growth and accomplishment. Therefore, everything, every place that we went, every step along the way, is a Maasei. He adds, to conclude, that's why we read this before Tisha B'av. People should not get depressed, because even in Golos, it's part of the journey which will ultimately lead to the ultimate redemption. The uniform authority of the Torah, the notion that there is one Torah that is obligatory equally on everybody, with the same level of objective authority on everybody, is an assumption I think that we all make. It is a default assumption, and I think it is so widely assumed, it's almost not even articulated, because it seems to be so obvious, we just take it for granted. And I think, in fact, it is the case, and it is accurate. It is, of course, also true that the Torah itself sometimes distinguishes between whether you live in Israel or not, the base of Mikdash or not, a Kohen or not, a man or a woman. But even those distinctions, I don't think, disprove the basic assumption of uniformity. After all, they only make up a fraction of the Torah. And moreover, those distinctions themselves come from above. They come from the Torah itself. So if you accept the objective authority of the Torah, you also accept the Torah's distinction between, for example, what can be done in Israel and what is done outside of Israel in the diaspora or other such distinctions. But it all comes from this assumption of this uniform objective authority of the Torah. Nevertheless, there are some very, very minor exceptions in the Torah, exceptions in the Torah, where we see in Judaism the idea of some kind of a subjective or personalized uh, or tailor-made, individualized form of Judaism. And one of the primary examples of that comes from the beginning of our Parsha, the beginning of Parshas Matos, and that is the notion of Nadarim. The idea that a person, a man or a woman, can take a vow obligating him or herself in something that the Torah does not obligate, or prohibiting him or herself in something that the Torah does not prohibit. Whether it's Nadarim, or Shavuos, oaths, or vows, there are subtle differences between them, but for our purposes we'll treat them as the same. This phenomenon exists, and this seems to be a real interesting exception to the general default an assumption that we've been made, which is usually true, which is that there is one Judaism, one Shulchan Aruch, one Torah for everyone, here all of a sudden we have the ability to, so to speak, make up my own Torah. Maybe the people down the block are allowed to do X or Y, because I took a neder, now I can't do it. And the Torah somehow endorses that. How are we to understand this clear exception and this Yotzim and Haklal? It seems to be so different than everything else in Judaism and everything we usually assume. So in fact... This itself seems to be, uh, if not a debate, but at least have some interesting and sometimes even slightly conflicting sources in Chazal and in Rishonim. And one person in particular I want to focus on is the thought of the Rambam. So the Rambam, as a general rule, goes with the default assumption we made to begin this Devar Torah. The Rambam is Prakim in the fourth parak, takes a very negative approach to Nadarim. Yes, the Torah allows it but it's not something really you should ever do. After all, the Torah itself is a perfectly designed system intended to enable perfection of character traits. Why would you possibly want to add or, you know, in any way to an obligation or a prohibition? The Torah itself is a perfectly fine-tuned system. As the well-known Pasuk in Tehillim states, Torah Sashem Temima, the Torah is complete, the Torah is perfect. Why would you possibly think that you can improve on the system by adding to it? Moreover, the Rambam there in the Shemona Prakim quotes an important Gemara in the Yerushalmi, in the ninth chapter of Masech Nadarim, which is also makes a similar point, which Rav Idi says in the name of Yitzchak, Lo de'echa, Masha Asra, Lecha HaTorah, 
It's not enough of the things that the Torah obligated or prohibited. You want to add other things to it? In other words, why are you trying to outsmart the Torah? The Torah has a system. Why should you change that? Why are you working on it? And therefore, the Ramam summarizes his position there in the Shemona Prakim, and he says, anyone who's bikesh lahosif aleilu hadvarim, you want to add on to the Torah with nedarim, hariza osam mas haroyim v'hulo yada. You don't know what you're doing, and you're doing a bad thing. These comments of the Rambam here and the statements of Chazal he's quoting in the Shemona Prakim are very reminiscent of, and in fact consistent with, the Rambam's very famous approach to the idea of a Nazir, the Nazarite. Again, it's a parsha in the Torah. It's allowed. The person takes a vow not to have wine or any products of that, uh, come close to the dead person or cut their hair. And there's a halachos, it exists in the Torah. Yet the Ramam says in Hilchos Deos, Paragimel, that a person who does this is a mistake. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't go to the extremes. You shouldn't reject this. It really is a thing that's a mistake. A person should not do that. Moreover, the Ramam in Hilchos Nadarim says, and the Ramam quotes, it's actually a Gemara, but the Ramam is quoting it, if you make a neder, it's as if you made a ad hoc mizbeach, uh, if you will, which is called a bama, an altar. And instead of going to the base of Migdash to bring your karban, you just kind of, you know, on the side of the street or in your backyard, you create this ad hoc mizbeach and you offer a karban, something which is totally prohibited. So here, Chazal and the Ramam echoing this are comparing taking a neder to something which is totally prohibited. Now it's interesting, and I think this point is further underscored when we consider the comparison between them. Why compare? What's the comparison? Why not just say it's bad? Why compare taking a neder to building a bama? So the Ran, in his commentary to that Gemara, says that the real issue is the common denominator is a person thinking for himself and outthinking, thinking they can outthink the Torah on their own. After all, a person might think, well, just like Hashem, the Torah wants me to bring karbanos in Yerushalayim, in the Mesa Migdash, so I'm sure the Torah would also be happy if I brought them in my backyard. That's a huge mistake. So too, a person might think, well, just like the Torah obligates and prohibits all sorts of things, the Torah will also be happy if I obligate or prohibit myself and all sorts of things. So it's, there's a certain kernel of logic to it in a similar vein. But in both cases, a person made a fatal mistake of making assumptions that in fact are wrong and, so to speak, thinking for themselves and not just trusting in the Torah. All of this notwithstanding, what is fascinating and important to, inclu- to acknowledge is that there are other times where the Rambam's position is more nuanced and actually is more positively inclined to these more type of subjective, personalized approaches to Judaism. For example, the Rambam in the 13th chapter of Hilchus Nadarim, Halacha Chavkimol, says if a person takes a neder, makes a vow to establish and improve his or her character traits, that person is praiseworthy. Moreover, the Ramam in Hilchus Nazirus in Perak Yud uh, is very positive about the Nazir specifically. Notwithstanding the previous things we saw from the Ramam in Hilchus Deos, here in Perak Yud of Hilchus Nazirus, the Ramam is very praiseworthy and very complimentary of a person who becomes a Nazir. Hanazir Lahashem, Hanodir, excuse me, Lahashem, Kedusha Hariza The person is praiseworthy. It's wonderful that a person did that. In Hilchus Nadarim, the Ramam says, Mishin Nadar Nadarim Kidei Lakonein Deosov Lataken Masav Hariza Zarizumashubach. It's a very good thing. So how do we reconcile the prevalent view of the Rambam with these seemingly contradictory statements? And I think the answer is clear, that the default is, as we started from this year, the default is authority and the uniform conformity of the Torah. We all are obligated equally. And yet, the fact that there is a concept of Nadarim in our Parsha highlights the Torah's recognition that in some circumstances, an individual may need flexibility and the need for individual expression, which can be done in the context and under the rubric of the Torah through the idea of Nadarim. The exception to the rule, but still the rule must be maintained.